You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. In this episode, unfortunately, I could not make it, but it's a bit of a shame that I wasn't because in this episode, you're going to hear a real personal story from someone who actually bought a property and when everything went wrong with the building and what actually happened, who was left carrying the can. Fortunately, though, this led her to a career and this is exactly what we're going to talk about today is who's responsible and what happens when it all goes wrong. What other product do you have to litigate to get it replaced? if it's wrong. A car, it gets recalled. A vacuum cleaner gets replaced. A $10 toaster, you get a new one. Why is it that with a million dollar or a $10 million or, you know, some of them in Barangaroo are going for $65 million, um, why is it that you have to litigate to get what you paid for? It is the only product that that happens. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. We're dedicating this episode to apartment owners. Now, there have been a few issues of late that have really put it into the spotlight that apartment owners can be left carrying the can when things go wrong with a building. Take Opal Tower. And that's a classic example. And even though the developer, the builder, and possibly some of the contractors and consultants won't get off scot-free, the individual owners are the ones who will suffer as a result of the defects for years, possibly even decades. And some may never recover financially. And then you look at all of the buyers of off the plan who are trying to settle their purchases when they made these agreements back in the boom. And there's now such a term as settlement risk, which I don't even think existed before. And it means that many of them start off owing more than their place is worth and others have lost everything because the valuations dropped so much they simply couldn't get the money to finance the deal. So today we're picking the brains of Karen Stiles, who has been Executive Officer of the Owners Corporation Network since 2012. Now, interestingly, it was her own personal experience with major building defects that led her to discover this peak body for strata owners in the first place. Karen's experience on strata committees began with her first apartment purchase back in 1984, and today she is on the committee of one relatively new, small strata scheme and secretary of a medium-sized older scheme, which has carried out an extensive fire safety upgrade. So she's got some pretty hands-on, you know, skin of the game. Her extensive voluntary and paid membership of regulatory and independent bodies has involved interaction with a broad range of people from ministers, directors general and vice-chancellors through to community groups, scientists, teachers and staff on an advocacy, monitoring, lobbying, educational and guest speaker basis. So Karen brings to OCN and us today a wealth of real life experience and today we're going to find out more about what's happening in this space. Thank you, Karen. Hi, Veronica. Now, can you tell me a bit about your own personal experience with building defects that led you to seek out the Owners Corporation Network in the first place and obviously then to join it in your capacity as Executive Director? Ah, yes. Uh, So I was one of the many people who, um, with wild abandon, bought off the plan. Despite advice from uh, a friend of mine who was in the industry saying, don't do it. (laughs) <laughs> but I fell in love with the glossy brochure. When was this? The dream. Um, 2001, I think I signed the contract, and about 2003 I inherited what turned out to be uh, pretty much a white elephant. Oh, do you? So, uh, yeah, years of stress, years of financial pressure and um just trying to navigate the maze that is building defects where everybody else but the owners understands the rules of the game. Oh, that's a really interesting point. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Now, just we'll get to that because that, I love that, everybody else but the owners and yet it's the owners at the end of the day that will carry on ownership of that building and then their individual lot. Okay. So you bought in 2001 and two years later you started having problems or problems started. How long was it finished? When was it finished? 
Um, from memory, 2003. It's a little bit like childbirth. I've blocked out a lot of the oh, memories, right. <laughs> Veronica. <laughs> Do you still own that property? Oh, no. Okay. So you bought it in 2001, settled probably two years later. Did you live in it? No. Okay. So it was always meant to be an investment? It was meant to be for my partner, who at the time had post-traumatic stress disorder, and I wanted him in a little apartment so he could have a dog. Okay. Because it came with a courtyard that opened up into a very large garden area. So that was the reasoning? That was the reasoning. That was the dream. Okay. The nightmare was that that courtyard <sighs> became a walled courtyard, I might Ooh. add, uh, became a glass-surrounded uh, balcony and the pet-friendly bylaws that were sent out with the contract were changed at the first AGM to no animals. And it happened in a blink of an eye. I was there. I was prepared. I had my clipboard. I had my notes. Um, and yet everything fell apart. Wow. Okay. So there's a couple of things there. One is that what you thought you were buying you didn't get. Yep. And there's a variation <laughs> allowance, isn't there, in these contracts. So that's obviously something you found out about retrospectively by the sounds of it? Uh, well, I, I knew that it could vary by up to 5% and still be allowable. Mm. Uh, I guess I just hadn't understood what that might mean. Mm. Uh, I was very lucky when I was um, purchasing that my friend who was in the industry went through the contract with a fine-tooth comb and listed absolutely everything. And so when you're in the display apartment, it's all very gorgeous and you're in love, you're seeing yourself with your coffee and croissants and it's, it's just terrific. He was jotting down all the things and he asked, will the air conditioner, he asked the agent, will the air conditioner be included? And he said, oh, well, it's in the display unit, so yeah. And so that got put on the contract. Um, when I got to see the apartment after it was finished, there was no air conditioner, there was no extra toilet, the courtyard had become a balcony, pets weren't allowed. My local lawyer who I'd used, just a local solicitor, said, well, too bad. You know, it's under your 5%, that's how it goes. Fortunately, I had another friend who was more canny and he said, go to these lawyers who specialise in off-the-plan contracts. Mm. And he got me a $10,000 compensation for the lack of the toilet and I got the air conditioner installed. Nobody else was that lucky because they didn't have the support that I did. Mm. Support, that's a big word, that. Okay. And, that, yeah, God, unpacking this is massive. So that was the variance side of things and obviously, like you said, you knew that there was a 5% variance, but what that means you're unaware of. And clearly they overstepped the mark, which is why your lawyer was able to get back, get you some compensation. Um, and obviously people don't know where to turn to. They're not going to get the right legal help. We had um, actually Jenny Tonner, who's a conveyancer and back in episode 52, and she did talk at length about off the plan contracts and um, the issues with them. So yes, I think that just highlights exactly why you need the right representation. And then, of course, the bylaw that was promised as a sales pitch <laughs> that you could have pets. Of course, at the end of the day, the developer can't guarantee that because then all the owners basically banded together and said, no, we don't want pets, right? Well, actually, no, it was a complete coup. The uh, strata manager who'd been appointed by the developer ran the first AGM. So let me just set the scene for that. We're standing in an underground car park. None of these people have met each other before. They come from all walks of life. Um, they, most of them don't know what they're doing. It was in the time when everyone was saying, you're a mug if you don't have, you know, a collection of, of investment properties. So all these mums and dads with no idea were running about picking up properties. So there you've got this array of, of people and you've got the developer's representative basically running the meeting with the strata manager. And the developer still owned 26 of the 102 lots. So they've got real skin in the game. They've got 26 votes. So there we all are, huddled, standing in this thing. And that was done quite deliberately so that people don't hang about. <laughs> Get to know each other in the car park. Precisely. Mm. Anyway, so the strata manager, who it turned out had sold his business um, in the interim of being appointed and, and the first AGM, and in fact I'd had to chase him to get to the AGM because um, it, 
they hold that when 30% of the lots have been sold, lots or apartments uh, have been sold. But they don't always get everybody's names right. So anyway, I had actually chased him. So I was A, lucky to be at the meeting, B, prepared because I'd owned Strata before, although not straight off the plan. And one of the men said, we've got a problem. There is water running down the inside walls of six of the apartments. Now, this is before people have moved in. Wow. And another woman said, but my son's parking space is too narrow and I'm going to go to the media. And the developer's rep immediately focused his attention on the woman and the car space and divided the entire place and completely distracted everybody, all the other owners, and took them away from the leaking units. It was exquisitely executed, wow. even mm. though evil. <laughs> so you, you, you respected the skill with which, you know, that they, uh, yeah, okay. And then the strata manager said, this building really doesn't um, suit animals, so I propose we change it. Anyone opposed? And before I had my hand up, it was done. It was just so amazing. So that was the pet-friendly buildings. And yet we had a, a courtyard the size of a football field and what should have been individual courtyards opening onto it. But there you go. All right. So, okay, so not a good experience. And so that led you, so that's back in 2003 when that started happening. Um, and you joined the OCN in 2012. So there's another nine years of um, discovering or searching for support and help and all the rest of it. I mean, like you've ultimately, I mean, I, I, I want to hear more about what OCN does, obviously. Um, and you came to my attention. There were a couple of things, actually. Once, because all the, leg the legislation changed in 2016, didn't it? Mm -hmm. um, and pets is part of that, <laughs> I understand. <laughs> yes. So you can clarify, actually, for us what that is now, because there is a lot of misinformation out there currently. I know my own strata manager doesn't appear to understand what the current legislation is around pets. Um so that's number one, and that's the first time I came across the Owners Corporation Network, actually. Um, and then the other time was on LinkedIn following the Opal Tower um, debacle, if we can call it that, catastrophe, I think probably a better word for it. And I've just noticed a lot of your commentary or um, your posts in LinkedIn around that as well, and that really does point to ultimately the people suffering the most are those individual owners who have bought those lots or those apartments and they are going to be suffering for a long time. So I think it's important that people understand the risks when they're buying into Strata and Strata obviously has a lot of benefits. It's not like it's all negative, otherwise it would never do it. But um, clearly there's a lot of risks that people just are, are blind to. So let's sort of dive in there a bit. But do you want to just clear up the pet thing first? Because it's obviously relative to your <laughs> relevant to your own situation here too. When the uh, strata law reform started in 2012, they were the largest uh, changes ever since uh, strata law was introduced in New South Wales in 1961. There'd been a bit of tinkering, but not much. It actually took four years of consultation to get those through. So um, the legislation came in in 2015 and then 2016, and it was aimed at being much more pet friendly than the default no pets allowed. Because uh, obviously it's been uh, proved through research that pets are good for um, individual people and also for communities and, you know, connection and all those kinds of things. So, and, and values are improved. So places like Jackson's Landing, which is a large community in um, Piermont, is very pet friendly. Right. They've got dog walking clubs and all sorts of things. And it is very, um, very stable. People love living there. They have a real sense of community and the values of, are high because owners and renters value being able to have a, a pet and they will pay a premium for that. And a lot of people do not understand that very simple math, mm. you know, when they exclude animals. You yeah. know, if you manage them, it's fine. They have had no problems. It's very true. I mean, it's interesting that um, a, a lot of people, well, two sides of this. I mean, I find it astounding that people go and buy dogs before they've actually found home. <laughs> yes. That astounds me. But on the flip side of that, I also find it bizarre that people won't allow a cat or a bird into a, you know, a cat's 
you know, it can be contained, believe it or not. But um, yeah. I've had a cat in an apartment. I remember having to actually submit submit her <laughs> references. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there are ways that that, that these can be uh, addressed, but um, there's a lot of pre- there's a lot of prejudice around it. A lot of people worry about noise. They worry about dirt. They worry about you know waste. Waste. That's the word. Thank you. Waste. They worry about all those sorts of things. But I think when pet owners feel very um, grateful and thankful to be able to have their pet. Yes. They go to great pains to look after it, right? Yes. It's when they're illegal that you've got the problem of the of the kitty litter going down the toilet because the kitty litter bag says, um, you know, can be flushed in really big letters. But then in really tiny letters under that it goes in 70 um, mil lots which is like, <laughs> you know, a tiny cup full. So, mm. of course, everyone just throws the kitty litter down. They're 34 stories up. It's fine until, an, um, you know, an elbow joint blows. Right. And but if, if they were allowed to have that animal, they would be taking that to the, the waste room and, and making sure that there were no problems so that they could keep their animal. Mm. That's, yeah, it's... Just makes sense. And so, okay, so but it's still not in every building. So what's what's the, the legislation now around that? Well, they've provided model bylaws which are pet friendly, but people have to decide to take those up. And every, uh, strata owners were required to review their bylaws in relation to the new bottle, uh, model bylaws in 2016, 2017. I imagine a lot of them still haven't done that. Um, but those that did might have said, we like what we've got. Mm. So you've got the status quo. So, so there's no compunction now. I, well, I was no. under the impression that it was like the, you couldn't be refused um, on, re- on, re- on unreasonable grounds. Yeah, but then you've got to take that to NCAT, right. you know, which is, you know, like the, the chocolate wheel of justice, really. Right. Uh, you sound so cynical, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I should tell you that I actually found OCN before 2012. Right. I, uh, a friend said, I think you might really benefit from meeting these people in about 2004 when I was chairman, secretary and treasurer of my um, body corporate trying to go through a multi-million dollar defect. So you were chairman, secre- secretary and treasurer. Does that mean nobody else wanted to, uh, to get involved? Yep. Right, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was a joy. So... I went to the first meeting and I threw myself at their feet. And uh, so I've been a member since then. Um, And I I made a suggestion at one point, and it was obviously one suggestion too many, that they should create a guide on something that was, you know, being talked about on the members-only forum and it was really pertinent. And I said, you must create a guide on this. And they said, want a job? (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Yeah. So... But uh, so here I am now as executive officer and still dealing with defects for other people. And Mm. it's the reason that most people come to OCN. Right. So I've heard various stats around the amount of buildings that have defects, the amount of new buildings that have defects. When I say new, sort of say within the first 10 years, shall we say? Yeah. and I've heard, you know, I've heard them varying stats from 40% up to sort of 70, even up to 90% of buildings have defects. I mean, what would your experience of that be? Uh, the majority of, the vast majority of buildings, uh, new buildings have defects. City Futures did a study in 2011 that was published in 2012. It, the study was actually about uh, governance and what uh, factors influenced being able to effectively manage a building. And the surprise answer to that was building defects. And 72% of respondents who were in buildings built before 2000 said they had uh, they knew of at least one major defect and 85% of uh, people in buildings built since 2000 reported a, at least one major defect. Um, so, so that's pretty significant. that, you could draw two conclusions or probably more than two. One is that defects are on the rise or the other is that older buildings pre-2000, um, people have forgotten. No, it's not about <laughs> forgetting. I mean, <laughs> the pyramids still stand right. and you've got new buildings like mine, really, if we'd been absolutely honest about it, it was a knockdown rebuild. Mm. Uh, there were so many problems. The the two frequent flyer defects. You mean the building that you subsequently uh, sold? 
Yes. With the apartment you said. Yep. Yes. Mm. Um, the fire safety issues were so endemic, you really needed to, to it, it's impossibly expensive and difficult to retrofit uh, serious issues like, uh, you know, fire safety defects mm. and waterproofing. Yeah. We're, we're talking about not just bathrooms, but balconies. Yeah. We had 102 Pools balconies. Oh, discuss. <laughs> Garden beds above gar- garages and stuff like that. I mean, yes. yeah, water will find the path of least resistance and water defects, I, I know, are just a, a nightmare for people. So yes. you're finding this in the vast majority, as you say, of buildings. Yeah. Mm. And do they make themselves, these defects, are they always making themselves um, known within the statutory period? Oh, no. No, no, no. So if I if I use my own building as an example, we knew about the six apartments that mm. uh, the water was flowing through. I did discover when we were doing an inspection that the young single mum with three little kids was plugging in her bar heater on that wall uh, and we did suggest to her that that might not be a great idea. Um, but anyway, we knew about those. But every time it rained and the wind was blowing in a different direction, we found new leaks. Mm. And it's just lucky that, you know, I live with a pen and paper in my hand and I would note every time. And another thing that happened was that um, uh, the lights shorted in one of the kitchens and everyone went, okay, well, we'll get that fixed. And I went, well, why did it short? (laughs) And it turned out that there was um, whoever had put the insulation in had put it in over halogen lights they get really, really hot and it had set this off. So then we had to ask ourselves, is that in everyone? And, of course, it was in a substantial number of them. So you've got endemic problems like that. And a lot of that stems back from um, the training has deteriorated. You know, TAFE used to be the most wonderful institution. It turned out um, industry-ready people, you know, excited um, and, and very well equipped. That's not, that's all gone. There's no supervisors anymore. Um, the, and the quality of the training for that has just diminished terribly. There used to be a clerk of works and he would go around with, with like a golf ball and bounce it on the concrete to make sure it wasn't drummy, to see the falls were going the right way to the drains. That doesn't exist anymore. So all of those things... Um, as so well. these are all sort of compliance measures, right? So, so or steps in the compliance process that you're saying that really don't exist. Yeah. Well, it, it starts from training. The mm. other thing is, of but course. That's compliance as well, isn't it? I mean, it, it, you've got to be able to pass exams, you know, show that you can do the job, you know, yeah. really. Yeah. And even if the waterproofer does know what he's doing and does use the right products in the right order, the electrician might come stomping in with his hobnail boots and ruin it. And puncture it, yeah. So with a clerk of works, those things wouldn't have happened, you know. It, it was very organised and people were proud of their work. And the clerk of works used to work for councils, right? Well, yes, or for the builder. Right, okay. But certainly council inspectors were very much out there. Right. And I remember my own planter box experience in an older building. There was the Building Services Commission at the time and Builders were afraid of them. They would come out and say, this is wrong, here's the scope of works that needs to be fixed and I will inspect it. And if it's wrong, you will pay for someone else to fix it again. So why has that layer evaporated? The idea of deregulation and less red tape and, you know, innovation and all of those things. I mean, my my six leaking um, apartments, which turned out to be many more, were the... Um, the product of a new wall cladding system right. which hadn't been properly uh, um, water, waterproofed right, in, right. in between the the sections. So it was in, in the installation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, not so long ago there were hot water pipes coming from Germany, so you would expect them to be of high quality. Um, turns out they don't like hot water. So what's this? So they leaked. (laughs) Right. And I know of one building that had to be completely retrofitted. We're talking about a 28-storey building. All of the hot water pipes had to be replaced in a new building. So, okay, so we all heard about Opal Tower 
<laughs> you know, because that was pretty dramatic. Christmas Eve and a whole bunch of people have to get, well, the whole building gets, gets evacuated and, and some very, very visible, very frightening structural um, cracks and, and, and issues there. Why doesn't anybody, oh, and we hear about Grenfell Tower and the Cross Tower and the, and the actual cladding, the, the flammable cladding, and why haven't we heard stories about, you know, in a 28-storey building having to have all its hot water plumbing retrofitted? Usually it's because the people are completely overwhelmed trying to deal with the issues at the time. They don't want word to get out that there are problems with their building because that Ooh, will affect that's values. that's an interesting one, yeah. Ooh, with that's... my own building, we made the decision, or I did, that we would be completely transparent. So we actually spoke with local leasing agents. We were very transparent in our minutes about the fact that we had defects and what we were doing about them. So people could feel confident that the committee was on top of this, mm. you know, that it was going to be fixed. Um, but most don't. It's all under the carpet. So even if you do your strata search, yes. you know, and we need to talk about due mm. diligence, mm. but even if you do your strata search, you're not necessarily going to find what you need to know because it may not be documented. And the other problem is also there's no quality assurance of strata the people who do strata searches. No, I know. In fact, we interviewed Amanda Farmer back in uh, episode 25 and she's got a, a property podcast called Your Strata Property and we talked about that whole issue of strata searches and what is in them and what is not in them and the lack of consistency and the lack of, you know, we have a pro forma in our office, for instance, when we evaluate a strata report for mm. a client before they buy a property and we're looking for what's missing. Yes. Um, and one of the big things that Amanda talks about is is ask for the emails because in the correspondence all this stuff's hidden. You know, they may not minute it because it may not be officially discussed in any meetings. Yeah. And that's actually frightening, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. And, you know, we, we do need to talk about due diligence when you're looking at buying off the plan. And I did that. I actually researched the developer and the builder. Do you know, I wrote a post on LinkedIn just this morning on exactly that. And it uh, is the floor. I've got a flawed theory, flawed thinking series, much number 77. Oh. I'll get to 100 and it's turning into a book. Um, <laughs> and this is about that people think that the only thing they need to worry about is researching the developer and the builder. That's that's the only, that's, and once they do that, they'll be fine. It's just interesting you should say that just today because, as you say, there's so much else that can go wrong, right? Oh, and you can yeah. have one builder that builds one building really well and not another or one developer, you know, it's, it doesn't necessarily run in line. No, and, of course, the builder um, that was assigned to our building, uh, it was a family company established 70 years ago. I checked out their previous projects. Very good. Mm. They sold. In the time between me signing the contract oh, wow. and work starting, yeah, they sold the company. Yeah, and they would have been perfect otherwise. You go, 70 years, you couldn't get a better builder. Yep. Mm. So even with that research, <laughs> uh, you know, it was it was just Not a mess. Enough. Yeah, that's right. And it was a design and construct, which means that the developer gives more or less an artist's impression to the builder and goes, deliver me that and I'm going to give you 10 bucks. You know, it should cost you 20, but I'm only going to give you 10. So you figure it out. And people wonder why there's cost cutting. Uh, and, of course, the builder on that particular project uh, went into administration between Christmas and New Year, which is, you know, a favourite um, habit of... So they bought a, bought a business that had been in existence for 70 years and then went into administration. Yeah. So they're doing a Phoenix. Oh, yes. On a, building, on a business they paid for. Yes. It's a very bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, but it, it meant that they avoided defects rectification which, you know, the final negotiated settlement was $7 million. And I can say that because I wasn't required to sign a non-disclosure agreement, which most people are. And that's the other reason Ooh. why people don't know what they don't know, mm. because um, people are often bound by um, confidentiality by the developer um, who won't settle without it. Then they can't speak. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, okay, yeah. Which is why OCN has been calling for a special commission of inquiry because they can compel evidence and people can speak. Wow. So, and of course, because if you find yourself at, in court or taking a developer to court, which 
I think people don't realise how often this happens. Oh. Um, and then you've got to fund the legal bills whilst you're waiting for a settlement as well. So special levies galore and all that sort of thing. And then yeah. a lot of people just don't, as I said, if you haven't been through it, they just don't know what can go wrong. And then, of course, is the terms of the settlement is that they can't disclose. Wow. Okay, so you can disclose. $7 million settlement. Yeah, but it wasn't enough to fix no. all of the problems. Mm. So you're still short. So then they're, um, okay, so you pay your legal bills and you pay for part of it, but then obviously you've got to stump up the rest of the cash. So that's special levy territory, right? Oh, well, we actually took out strata finance mm -hmm. because it's a brand new building. There is nothing in the kitty. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> nothing. Oh, and you've no. got all these mums and dads and new marrieds. So they're, they're stretched. Um, they potentially on fixed incomes, mm. in the older people, and there was no money for special levies. That was a particular demographic. And so, so this is like bought by a lot of first home buyers then, was it? So people who have saved every cent to get the property in the first place have got nothing extra. Absolutely. Mm. Um, so we were like deers in the headlights. Anyway, somehow or other I found out about Strata Finance and we organised to take out a million-dollar facility, a, a line of credit. So we only drew down what we needed for bills, um, but it was a comfort to know and it was also a signal to the builder until he phoenixed um, to say we're cashed up and we're, we're committed to getting justice. Mm. I now know that there is no justice. There mm. is a legal system. Uh, it works very slowly. It doesn't necessarily work in favour of owners. Mm. Um, but anyway, at the time that seemed like a, a very clever thing to do. And it meant that the levies only went up a tiny bit for people. It was very achievable yeah. at the time. That's actually really interesting that you say that there is no justice. There is a legal system, but there is no justice. And what other product do you have to litigate to get it replaced if it's wrong. A car, it gets recalled. Mm. A vacuum cleaner gets replaced. A $10 toaster, you get a new one. Why is it that with a million dollar or a $10 million or, you know, some of them in Barangaroo are going for $65 million, yes. um, mm. why is it that you have to litigate to get what you paid for? Mm. It is the only product that that happens. So you still, you still own apartments. I do. You're on two owners' corporations. Yes, for my <laughs> sins. Um, so it hasn't turned you off. Oh, my next purchase was a 50-year-old building. Right, okay. You so, bet it turned me off. Right, right. So, yes, it turned you into a more discerning purchaser. And, and That's very diplomatic of you. Thank you, Veronica. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm trying to, I ran I'm, screaming. I'm trying to think of the words. <laughs> oh, look, it actually breaks my heart because I, I, I hear stories and I talk to people all the time that have had terrible, terrible situations and I still find other people trying to justify why they've recommend and particularly in my industry because I'm dealing I'm talking with other professionals who actually recommend that people buy them and then you've got the AOP who have uh, got a whole tax system structured around um, encouraging more individual investors into buying new stock and I get that we've got to provide housing I do understand that and and I do understand that that um, developers need to make money and builders need to make money and all that sort of stuff. But what I don't understand is why we're encouraging them to do things where they don't bear the responsibility for what they're building and that just encourages them to do it quickly. And I'm not saying they're all like that, but I'm just saying this, the system currently doesn't work. No, it, it the system is broken. Mm. And industry itself, you know, the good players in the industry are saying this and have been saying it for quite a few years. Mm. Um, I can remember being in discussions with um, developers and builders during the strata law reforms because they were looking at a building defects bond at the time um, to bridge the gap between um, the builder and the subsequent owner, so yep. the people that purchase from the developer because the contract is between the builder and the developer. There's no contractual rights. Hence for... why the law is a problem. Yes. Because the law relies on those direct contractual arrangements, right? Yeah. Mm. Okay. And we were talking about it and they were really unhappy about this bond. And my chairman at the time said to them, we are trying to save you from yourselves. <laughs> this is a race to the bottom. You know, nobody's going to win out of this. Um, and this is something a lot of people don't realise and not until 
few years ago, I didn't know it either. There's no such thing as homeowner's warranty for a building that's more than four storeys high. Four or more, that's mm. correct. And the reason the government stopped that, because it used to be that mm. everybody was covered, they stopped it because there were too many claims. So mm. just think what does about that. Say? that. Yeah. yeah, let's think about that for a second. <laughs> there were so many claims, they removed the protection. When? Who were they easing the burden on? Uh, gosh, the owners, mm. innocent owners who had nothing to do with any of this. I, I don't understand why governments do not understand that prevention is so much cheaper than cure. Oh, it's not just in this area, though, is it? It's just generally speaking. Oh, emergency, <clears throat> flood mitigation. I mean, mm. I, I look at the Insurance Council of Australia begging federal government to um, put in mitigation um, structures and they won't. So then they get to, um, you know, bail out all the poor people whose lives have been ruined. Okay, so but there has been a, a fund now put in place, right? So the developers do need to put, was it 2% of the build cost? Or what is it? There's a, there's in New South Wales anyway, there's this, explain yes. what that is. Okay. So yes, the developer, um, since the 1st of July, sorry, the 1st of January, 2018, any contract signed on or after that date, uh, the developer has to put in a, a 2% bond. Yep. In reality, they're going to uh, extend the um, claims on the builder, so the builder will have to pay it. They can do that either by an insurance bond or a bank guarantee, or if they're cash strapped, they'll be required to pay cash because they can't get those other things. Yeah. There's another crazy little situation. Anyway, um, if you look at, um, so the 2%, it was apparently, uh, and um, I haven't got this in writing, but it was apparently costed at being at least 5% was necessary. I know from my own experience in another building where I rented, um, it cost uh, $16 million to build in 2002 and it cost $9.5 million to fix between 2010 and 2012 when they finally won against the insurer after the builder had gone belly up. A little bit more That's, than 2%. Yeah. A little bit more than 5%. It's more than 50%. <laughs> yes, Exactly. So, oh dear, and That's... certainly the private insurers got out of the homeowners warranty scheme mm. because they were seeing something like twenty seven percent cost. But nobody's stopping the phoenixing. No, yeah, it's very convenient. It's it's astonishing. It's it... well, I think probably because what actually happens is that then it's up to individual owners or individual owners corporations to to bandy together to fight. Well, a a system, but b They've got to take so much additional action in order to force court orders in, in many times. Like, for instance, if, if the court has ordered that a builder or, or a developer pay a certain amount of money and that person decides to go broke, then it's then not up to the court to enforce that they pay the owner's corporation. It's actually to the owner's corporation to uh, instigate more legal action, correct? Yes. Yeah. So the owner's corporation network was actually born in 2002 after the chairman and secretary of a large new building were grappling with building defects, expensive insurance, uh, unfair contracts with, you know, for example, building managers that had been signed by the developer before the first AGM. Um, so because they sell those, they make money out of those and then the um, the contractors have to get their money back through the owners. So there's overcharging, no KPIs. In one situation, I know that there was no termination clause at all. So no ability to terminate the contract. Um, it's better now in New South Wales, but in, in Queensland, you can still have 25-year contracts and they just keep rolling them over. So there's all of that. Anyway, they thought, my God, are we alone? They did a bit of a ring around and um, a number of large new buildings got together and as they were sharing their stories, there was it was hashtag me too. And so the Owners Corporation Network became a pretty much it started as a group hug and <laughs> then, you know, a self-help group and then they started getting speakers and then they started advocating. And I know when OCN was called to testify at the Senate hearing into cladding uh, a couple of years ago, Stephen Goddard stood up and said, I stood before another parliamentary uh, committee in 2004 telling them how bad building quality 
was, here I am again. Wow. It's actually frightening. Now, I'm also mindful that we, you and I, we're both sitting here telling these terribly woeful stories and, and they are woeful stories. I don't want to come across like an absolute negative, you know, always talking down buildings, always talking down developers, always talking down builders, although there's obviously clearly compelling evidence that there's a real issue here. And you mentioned that there are some good players in this area, yes. in this industry. Yes. And so I guess it would be good to give them a bit of a shout-out. You know, because I'd like to interview them too. I'm putting it out there. We want to we want to talk to more people on both sides. I want to put some shonky developers. Come on, shonky developers. Come and tell us. Give us your pitch. Tell us why you're doing it. We want to feel like there's some hope. Is there any hope? Yes, there is hope. And, and again, it comes back to your due diligence, you know, doing your ASIC searches, um, checking on the directors to see if they've had companies that have folded in the past you know, go and look at previous projects, make sure you've got a specialist lawyer. Um, but there's a couple of um, developers in particular where people queue up to get their next property and mm. their next property. Mm. Um, and why is that? Because they know that if there are defects and, and you know, it, it's almost impossible to deliver a defects-free building. Yep. You know, despite best attempts, there's going to be things. Mm. But the good developers come back and they fix them. So it's the approach to that rather than, yeah. Yeah, they deliver all the as-built drawings, which are required by law, but many don't bother. Mm. So when you're trying to work out what's wrong with your plumbing and you've got no plumbing diagrams, Ooh. that's really exciting. built So, oh, yes. there's. Do you have a resource on this that we can make available for our listeners? We've got a broad um, feature item on our uh, website homepage on mm. Off The Plan, purchasing and what you need to, you know, buyer yeah. beware. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot more that we could uh, do on that. We'd like to institute, for example, an award for the best five-year-old building. Oh, wow. At what a great idea. Yeah. Well, at the moment you've got awards for brand new buildings. Yeah. And, oh, isn't it gorgeous? I and, love it. And the building <laughs> that, that caused the creation of the Owners Corporation Network actually is um, it, it won architectural awards. Mm. Just a pity about the build quality. Yeah. So we want to have that because, you know, often the paint isn't dried before they're getting these yeah. awards. Yeah, it's all about what it looks like. Yes. So, you know, we want to see a statutory duty of care. Uh, and certainly the the minister prior to the March election uh, announced that that would be coming in. We now have to work with whoever our new minister is to make sure that becomes a reality. It is insane that you have more protections for a $10 toaster than you do for an apartment. It is insane. Funny you use the analogy of a toaster as well or the metaphor of a toaster because I, one of, years ago when I was selling real estate for a living, one of my old colleagues said to me, do you know more people spend time choosing a toaster than they do a home? Yes, and it's funny because I've been looking at choice because, you know, I, they're my heroes for consumer protection on, on, you know, other issues. And there is a $200 toaster that apparently has failed the testing. And, you know... People are, you know, really unhappy. You know, $200 for a toaster and it doesn't toast. And I'm thinking a million dollars for an apartment and it's leaking. And like I'm thinking of, I'm picturing one now where an elderly couple actually had to build a moat in their lounge room to stop the water running through their unit every time it rained. A moat. So what they had was like a little hob like you have in the old-fashioned showers, Shower. yeah, like yeah. a little step up. And then they, they had they a space. A channel. Yes, so that they could then um, vacuum up the water. So if there was any chance of rain, they couldn't leave. They had to be ready to vacuum up the water. That affected their health, their mental health. Um, that's Are just for real? I mean, it just it beggars belief. That's just awful. Yeah, and it's not an isolated case. I mean, I think the mode is not everybody's. Yeah, well, yeah. that's a very creative solution, but oh, my God, that's yeah. just, just horrendous. Yeah. And is that because they're just waiting for these defects to basically get addressed? Which, so this is their, their, their stopgap measure whilst they wait because this stuff doesn't get fixed tomorrow, does it? I mean, oh, you don't no. get a leak today and then go, oh, God, let's get onto it, let's get this sorted. It's, it has to go through a whole process. Yes, and, and you've got the, the builders saying, I will do this. You know, and the shonky ones will come back with Celastic and, and just, you know, do a little, uh, you know, Band-Aid job knowing 
well, knowing that that's not a, a real solution, no. but hoping it gets past the two-year statutory warranty period. Right, so and just then it's not their the problem. water at bay until you get a little crack in the silicon. Exactly. <laughs> and then if you have the builder go belly up, then the insurer says, don't you dare do any repairs or else we're going to say that it's your repairs that cause the problem. Oh, so yep. everybody okay. dodges responsibility. Yeah. It's just, you know, he said, she said, all the way down the line and the owners are left with it. I can remember when... Um, I put a call out on, on the OCN forum, does anybody know, uh, you know, a good defects lawyer? Because we had 21 days to act or else we'd, you know, the developer was saying we'd lost our claim. Mm. There's a lot of bullying that goes yeah, on, a I lot imagine, of bluff. Yeah. And uh, I spoke to uh, this lawyer and he was very soothing, which was just wonderful because I needed soothing. Yeah, fair call. And, and I said, how long will this take? And he said, Karen... It takes as long as it takes. And what I've seen since, and, and that's really stayed with me, because it seems to take about seven years. Mm. And everybody else playing this game knows that except the, the owners. owners. Yeah, and it's horrendous, you know, living with that, particularly with water, you know, because you just can't really, you can't sell it, really. Nope. You can't sell it and get full value for it. Um, or you can patch it up, sell it and then live with yourself. Yeah, you're passing it on to somebody else who probably doesn't know about it because of the strata. everyone's agreed not to talk about it and put in the strata in it. So, That's um, right. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a real concern, isn't it? Unless you like Opal Tower and it's like splashed all over the front pages and what's that going to do to their values, even if this thing gets band-aided and fixed it and all the rest of it? Will they ever recover? You know, it's it's hard to know. Yeah, you know. but I, I see them as the lucky ones. Why is that? Because it's out in the open. Right. And most people just die a slow death of a thousand cuts mm. with their defects. Um, they're, not, they're not equipped to deal with this. Um, the support is, is you know, the, the quality of support out there is patchy mm. at best. So very bad to very good. Which reminds me, you're asking about, you know, say the good developers and, and the good builders. Yeah. I work with them a lot because they're being disenfranchised by the Dodgy Brothers. Yeah. They are trying to do the right thing and they're being constantly undercut by mm. people who know that they're going to, yep. you know, it, you can save $300 on, a, it, it costs about $300 to waterproof an average bathroom properly. It costs about 10000 to fix it. You know, yes. it's just <laughs> insane. So they they get under they get undercut all the time, um, and then they're also dealing with the lack of qualified staff, particularly uh, you know contractors, particularly in a boom time. The training, um, I think, multiplex has set up its own university uh, to train people in the important bits. They've just taken it on themselves because mm. they can't rely on on TAFE or you know government. Right. Education, yeah. It, so it really goes from go to woe. So yeah, I think so. Does the o, the OCN? Do you have like sort of register for reliable builders and developers? Do you have that as a resource? So I guess that's scary too because then you've got to ensure your own um <laughs> your own register. But I mean, where do people? I mean, yes, okay. You said you got to go and online check it all out, check ASIC, check this, check that, check history, look at other buildings and all the rest of it. But is there one central resource, a people a trusted resource that people can use to go to to get information that they can, you know, I guess highlights those that they can favour and maybe rings the alarm bells on anyone that's not on it. Yes. Uh, not really. Right. There is um, a website that uh, supposedly rates developers and builders, but then they pay to be rated and uh, they can yeah. remove comments. So <clears throat> yep. at OCN we've certainly talked about that for a long time. What we need to do is set up the structure. So it would be a positive thing. Mm. We would, as you say, we would name the good guys with, with ratings uh, you know, from our members on that and just not talk about Yeah, if you're not on there, the whole goal is to get on it rather than to... Yeah, so yeah. it's carrot and stick. Mm. There needs to be stick. Mm. Um, that got thrown away by government a long time ago and we need to work on that. But there also needs to be carrot. You know, there are builders and developers doing good work who are proud of their work yeah. and they should be showcased. Mm. Mm. Well, I'm pleased to hear that. So... What would you like to see addressed by our governments? 
What are some really, really, your eyes lit up and you're like, oh, would I? I've got, a whole, I like it, just looking at your whole page there. <laughs> that's that's the short version, right? <laughs> what would you like governments to do? Gosh, have you got another hour? <laughs> we might have to do a sequel. I know. Or a prequel. It's quite often that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's quite often that we, we sit here and chat for an hour and it's not enough. Yeah. We want to see a statutory duty of care. Um, the builder having a statutory duty of care to the subsequent owners. So you and me who purchase mm. from the developer. Um, we'd like to see a special um, in, a commission of inquiry that looks into the lack of consumer protections. Mm. You know, even the announcement at um, the building minister's forum in February, and they were talking about cladding. And there was a very yes minister statement put out by the BMF, which said they would investigate banning flammable cladding, uh, dependent on the, and I'm paraphrasing, the impact on industry. Uh, hello, did I hear consumers? Did I, what, consumers, anybody, lives, anyone? Lives, even oh, apart from anything else. Yes. Would in, you're saying investigate banning flammable cladding, even though they use the word flammable cladding and we'll investigate banning it, I forget even the rest of it. It's just we'll <laughs> investigate banning flammable cladding. Yeah. Oh. And industry's been calling for uh, the federal government to uh, stem the uh, avalanche of non-compliant products coming into the country for years. Mm. And I, I, nothing's happened. And then, and then you've got state governments. It's all very confusing, really. It's bizarre, isn't it? Because you go, right, okay, well, we don't want red tape. No one wants red tape, but it clearly sounds like we need it. We need some tape. Yes. Like, I mean, look, pick another in... colour, but but just... Yeah, whatever. Just, you know, make it purple. Um, yeah, I mean, look, look at... I've got the same issue in the real estate um, licensing end of things in New South Wales government. You know, they're changing the licensing requirements and all the rest of it, but they don't want to burden the industry. It was actual words used mm. um, when, you know, questioned about why is the barrier to entry so low? And, and, and you've don't got to the... burden the industry. Once again, what about the consumer? Well, and the Real Estate Institute of New South Wales is begging government to do this. Yes. They want to lift the standards. They've tried to introduce things and they're just, you know, as Tim... McKibben, yeah, the we had CEO. him actually on. We oh. actually interviewed him a few episodes back. Yeah. Oh God, he's fun. Um, <laughs> he and I, yeah, have a lot of laughs and, and cry. Um, it's it's infuriatingly frustrating. There's no doubt about it. It's mm. incredible. And and there again, there is research that proves that um, low level training increases the risk of fraud. Mm. And so. There's the the Real Estate Institute trying to lift standards and being stymied by government. Oh, no, that's red tape. Oh, no, it's insane. It's just, it absolutely is insane, yeah. And, and yes, and, and I find it interesting that government seems to be so supportive of industry and it's like, well, actually, who, who got, I know industry pays a lot of, you know, a lot of political donations and all the rest of it, but at the end of the day, it's individuals that vote the government in to look after us, so. And the crazy thing is that the government's, um, economic and, and population growth plans are predicated on high-rise living. Yes. And yet everything that's going on now is eroding consumer confidence. Absolutely. In... And we also have a situation where we've got buildings that are not built for longevity. No. It's, you know, and almost like they're deliberately built with a use-by date. You know, I'm, I'm a little worried about that. I'm extraordinarily worried about that. So we have we have governments on on both federal and state level that are both encouraging new construction. We have a population growth um, targets. Gonna, I was going to say problem. It's not really a problem because there's lots of good things about population growth. Lots of huge good things about population growth. But particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, we have targets. Yes, we have a reality. That's what we have, and those people need to be housed. Mm. And we have a stock shortage, um, and so. Builders and developers are going to have to construct more and more apartments, and yet, as you say, consumer uh, confidence is being eroded. Not just on the quality, though, but also on the values, because now we've got a situation where values have been falling and settlements aren't going ahead because valuations aren't coming in at the same price that the contract is at. 
Um, and so there's a massive area where people are understanding the real risk of negative equity. Well, they, they're losing their deposits mm. if they can't proceed to, to purchase. It's not just their deposits. Well, they've also lost that market opportunity. And if they get sued... They can be. They can actually be sued for the difference between the purchase price and the ultimate, or their purchase price and ultimate sale price. So the consequences there are very far-reaching. They may never, ever, ever get back into into a position where they can buy a property, which is wicked. It is wicked. Yeah. What other consumer product would you see this happening to? Very, very interesting. So I wish we could go, oh, let's just do this now. And I wish I could give some guidance, better guidance to our listeners on this. But I think the point of this episode really is a little bit of fear-mongering. It's a bit of Grim Reaper in a way. But I just I really passionately want people to understand the risks that they're taking on when they buy off the plan. And, I, and I'm heartened to hear that you, your experience is that there are some good developers out there and we're going to have to sort of find a way for them to put their hands up so that um, – People can easily identify who they are. Um, is there anything else that you could give, you know, apart from all the due diligence that that uh, buyers need to do? And obviously I'll include the links to the OCN on, on the show notes here, but is there anything else that you can suggest that anybody looking at buying an apartment needs to do that we haven't discussed today? Ask around. So uh, go and visit previous projects and if you can find, you know, names of committee members on the notice board, for example, Talk to them. Talk to somebody coming in and out. Are you happy? Have you had problems with the building? Mm. Talk to people around you to ask them their experiences. You know, people may have bought from this one or that one and had a good or a bad experience. So ask around. It's really, really important. It's mm. it's a huge, it's a lottery. Well, um, yeah. I mean, and not only that, you're buying into a community as well. I mean, this is some people call it the fourth layer of government. You know, yes. so so you're buying into that system, if you like, and with other people. So there's there's the social element of it, and, and just the personality element of it as well. But I guess that's great advice to actually ask people who live there, not just owners as tenants as well. I imagine they're going to understand if the building's got issues. Yeah, because they've got the the intrusion of all the inspections mm. of trying to work that out, or they're living with with water ingress or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, it's really important to ask, you know, real people about that. Maybe we sh- maybe we need to um, crowdfund to set up a um, a register of yeah. of the good guys. I like your idea of a. Um Award for the best five-year-old building. I love that. Every week we hear incredible stories about the dumb things that property buyers do. Dumb things that cost a lot of money and cause a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. And please, Karen, have you got a property dumbo for us? Because we can all learn what not to do from these stories. Well, it's probably me. Right. Just check out the ears. Um... I fell in love with a brochure. I proceeded to purchase that despite the um, exhortations of a friend in the industry. Mm. I didn't sell before I settled, um, which he begged me to do, and I would have made a profit on it then and then not had years of grief. Wow, yeah. Um, I did everything wrong. I Mm. used a local um, solicitor who didn't understand off the plan and and let can I say, these contracts are like an inch thick yeah. or for millennials, 2.5 centimetres. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually saw one recently. It was 1,800 pages. Yeah, yeah. And they're chock-a-block mm. of um, get-out-of-jail-free cards for the developer and very stringent requirements on the owner. Yeah, yeah. Uh, including, you know, if you settle, you agree that there are no uh, building defects. Yes, in fact, Jenny Tonner, so back in episode 52, she talked about that, you know, often that they have um, buyers are expected to do their pre-settlement inspection before the building's even complete. Yes. And then they don't get a second opportunity to add defects to that. So that's, you know, it's a real trap for young players, that one. Oh, yes. Mm. So you're the Dumbo because against all the advice of somebody else who actually knew a lot of this stuff, you fell in love and you let your elephant, because that's the metaphor for the subconscious mind, your elephant was going left when your brain, your little rational mind on top might have wanted to go right. Um, And you suffered years and years and years of financial and 
obviously stress uh, as a consequence. I was iridescent with stress. Iridescent, that's a word. That's what a friend said to me when I walked into a room one time. You are iridescent with stress. Because I can't tell you, the. I can't overemphasise the conflict that it causes within your community when you've got these defects and you've got people who don't understand why um, they have to build a moat in their lounge room, Mm. um, why this can't be fixed now. And, uh, oh, of course. you know, and yeah, yeah. there was one guy who said this, our, this unit is not fit for habitation. We want it knocked down and s- proceeded to sue the owners corporation. Mm. This is not happy living. Yeah, no. <laughs> this is not getting out of the family home to have a nice, easy life and lock the door when you go on holidays. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so you've got downsizers, for argument's sake, that get caught out here. And you've got, obviously, first home buyers who can get caught out. You've got investors who can get caught out. Anyone, basically, buying a brand new, probably anything. Well, some some experts that we've had on, on the show have said don't buy anything less than 10 years old. Yep. You know, because it takes that long for all this stuff to sort of work its way out of the, um, out of the system. Look, um, Karen, thanks so much for coming in. And thanks for sharing your story as well, because... I think that, you know, we just want to get it across to people, the risks. If you're aware of the risks and don't fall in love with the brochure and um, ignore all the good advice that's given to you, then you can make really good decisions around property. And when you make good decisions, your life becomes easier and you don't live with regret. And obviously you've lived with a lot of regret, which has sort of led you down a career path, so in a weird way. Well, hell hath no fury. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, thank you so much for joining us today, Karen. Thanks, Veronica. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... All around understanding some of the other mistakes that developers can make that owners end up carrying the can for. Now, this is one of the things that we didn't talk about during this episode, but one of the issues is the actual design of the apartment itself. So unless you can read plans really well, when you're buying off the plan, it's really easy not to realise certain things are there, such as ceiling heights, for instance. A lot of developers will engage an architect, for instance. And just because a development is architect designed doesn't actually mean that it's well designed and really good to live in. Now, I'll give you an example. There's an apartment in a suburb close to me that's currently on the market. Now, it was built and completed in 2015. This particular apartment is top floor. It's a two-level apartment. It's got city views, got lovely big terrace, three bedrooms, two bathrooms. You'd think that it'd fly out the door. It's, you know, it's a really pleasant place. But it's got some major issues. Now, the major issues are where the biggest terrace is located is off the main bedroom, not off the living room. And that's weird because it's got a tiny little balcony off the living area and it's huge terrace off the bedroom. Now, nobody wants to entertain off their bedroom. They want to entertain off their living area. So that's the first thing. The second thing is where the main bathroom is located. It is located directly off the living area. And I, I just look at this and I think when this was built, really they had complete clean slate. They could have designed whatever they wanted but instead they've created a property that has a really terrible floor plan. Now, it was sold off the plan back in September 2015. They paid $1.4 million for it. So they paid a premium for being brand new anyway, and obviously the market's pretty hot back there. But they've inherited, the owner has inherited that poor floor plan, and they can't do anything about it. And now it's on the market, and it's been on the market for a long time, and now they're asking $1.35 million for it. That is The price drop is not because of the market. That price drop is because that is terribly designed. Now, that is something that developer really didn't pay for in terms of costing them enormously, but subsequent owners will always be paying for the fact that that property has a terrible floor plan. So the Elephant Rider Bootcamp here is about understanding if you want to buy brand new, and we are not encouraging it, but if you're going to do it, learn how to read plans and be really critical about the room layout and also work out the actual size of those rooms because quite often there's no dimensions on these plans and visually they look big but in reality they're not that big. Please join us for our next episode when we interview a motley fool. 
What is a Motley Fool, you may ask? Well, Motley Fool is an online subscription-based service for advising people on the stock market. Scott Phillips is their chief investment advisor and he joins us to talk about investment fundamentals. He talks about whether people should use a share market in order to accelerate their saving for a home deposit. Also, alternatives for would-be investors who can't afford to buy investment-grade property. It's a very, very interesting educational episode. I encourage you to join us. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Risk. Editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.